You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Say It Loud Network presents Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. Well, Byron, man, it's good to have you. Thanks for coming to the show. Oh, Dr. Ian, it's a pleasure, man. It's been too long. <laughs> yeah, it's been way too long. Before we get into why it's been too long, though, I want to I wanna go back. You and I have played golf together uh, with Michael Strahan, and uh, we've had great times, a lot of fun. And, you know, it's interesting when you meet people at different intersections of their life, you don't always know kind of their full history, of course, you being a three-time NBA champion with the Lakers, uh, being a coach of multiple teams, you know, uh, you know, just a great, great basketball career. But I didn't know that you started off in Inglewood, California, uh, in L.A. Uh, and I was saying to myself when I was reading that, wow, Inglewood, uh, so many things come to mind. But Beverly Hills does not come to mind when I think of Inglewood. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like you said, grew up in Inglewood, uh, and, and it's funny when I when I moved to Inglewood, I was about eleven, twelve years old. My mom and dad, we basically lived in uh, South Central LA. So when we moved to Inglewood, it was for us, it was like moving to Beverly Hills, and um, you know, we really felt good about it. But we didn't know how rough Inglewood was. But we had just come from one of the roughest neighborhoods in, in you know all of Southern California. So it, it was a little bit of a uh, obviously an adjustment period. But uh, being there for so long, you know. Obviously, um, we're real fond of being in Inglewood, and I and I and I tell people all the time when they ask me where I'm from, I'm very proud to be from Inglewood, California, because it molded me into the person that I am. Uh, you know, on the court, off the court, in my family life, my business life, my personal life. So, you know, I owe I owe a lot to the city of Inglewood. You know, it's interesting that you say that because when I've talked and met uh, people who are very successful in life in all different types of disciplines, whether they be lawyers, doctors, authors, actors athletes, um, they talk about how important their foundation was to their future success. Here you are, somebody growing up in South Central LA. I mean, just hearing South Central connotes so many things in your mind. And for you to sit here and say that it actually informed and formed uh, who you were to be the successful person that you have been. Talk a little bit about why South Central and then Inglewood was so important to your formation. Well, I think just like anything else in life, you know, Dr. Ian, you know, it's going to make you or break you. And growing up and being, and I, I'm going to even go back a little bit further because I was born in, a lot of people don't know this, but I was born in Ogden, Utah. You know, I was born in almost Mormon country and then moved to L.A. Uh, when my mother and my, my stepdad, who I always called my dad because he raised me, uh, when they came to L.A. and got their self-established in South Central, then my grandmother sent me to, you know, sent me to L.A. But, you know, I, there, there were so many things I saw at a very young 
age um, that could have broke a lot of people. You know, I, I saw guys get murdered right in front of me. Uh, I saw domestic violence. I saw so many things that I thought for me as a young kid, um, I could go that way or I can go that way. You know, that, and that's how I kind of looked at it. And I knew I was, you know, pretty good in all the sports. <clears throat> um, I had my mind made up at 12 years old that I wanted to play in the NBA and I wanted a better life for myself, for my family. And that, you know, th those blinders that I kept on, you know, after witnessing so many things at an early age, uh, like I said, really molded me into having a much more positive outlook and that this doesn't have to just be for me. You know, just because I'm in South Central, just because I'm in Inglewood, uh, I don't have to be, uh, as a young African-American, I don't have to do submit to the violence, submit to, to uh, joining the gangs and things of that nature. I wanted to go the different route. And, and in doing that, I really just kept my focus on my sports and my school. And, and that really just kind of, you know, helped me see everything through and get to the next level, which was out of Inglewood to high school to Arizona State to then to be able to fulfill my dream of getting into the NBA. Well, there's a lot there's a lot you said there to unpack. I mean, first of all, the concept of blinders, right? I mean, the concept yeah. that you're able to block out all of the negative distractions and all the temptations actually to lead you down a different path at such a young age, which in my opinion, um, really sets up the foundation of developing the ability to focus, which is instrumental, mm -hmm. not just on the basketball court, but in everything in life when you need to perform to be able to focus. So I got to imagine, not that you knew that that was going to inform your ability to develop focus, but looking back at it now, it would be safe to say that your focus or ability to do such started way back then. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I love, you know, you being a doctor, was playing golf and having so fun, but I love how you break it down and take uh, sudden parts of uh, what I just said. Like you said, I said a whole lot, you know, the short period of time. But yeah, I think, you know, at 12 years old, I, I had no idea that I was able to be able to focus on a singular goal that I had in mind and not to allow the distractions of the gang violence, uh, the drug dealers and things of that nature, uh, you know, for me to not to submit to them and to have that singular mindset that I had was to be able to make it, you know, make it out of the ghetto as we always talked about. I wanted to make it out of the hood. I wanted to make, uh, make my life in, in my meaning, you know, worth something. And, and at 12 years old, like you said, I had no idea. That's what I was doing as far as focusing on on that and having that positive outlook and not allowing the negative, you know, the negativity of the violence, the gang violence, the, the drug dealers and, and, and all that stuff having an influence on me. Now, I, I'm not, you know, trying to say that I didn't have uh, any temptations whatsoever because those guys were always around. You know, they were always around me. But at an early age, I, I developed, you know, a very uh, strong will to be successful and not to go that route because I saw too many of my friends and too many people that I knew that were going that route. And I thought that was the easy way out. And I, and I wanted something much better, you know, better for myself and my family. Well, the other thing you said that was very informative to me and something that was a guiding principle when I was a child also was that you want a better life for your family. And a lot of people don't understand how motivating it can be for impoverished right. people like I was, not just because I wanted to become famous or rich. I didn't want to do that just for the sake of that. My right. goal was to improve the life of my family members and so they could have an easier time. My mother, I didn't have a dad, but my mother, I didn't want her to have to struggle like she had struggled and I wanted my brother and aunts and uncles to live better. So it's interesting right. that uh, a lot of us who come from that background, while people tend to think that fame is our number one goal, it really isn't. It's about providing for family. Absolutely. I mean, I never thought about, you know, being, you know, rich and famous. You know, I just thought if I made it to the NBA, I'll be able to take care of my family. And, and like you said, my 
mom. I, I saw my mom, you know, struggle, uh, you know, just, just being a housekeeper and trying to, you know, trying to work a, a regular job and then come home and take care of her family. I saw my dad uh, that would have two jobs, you know, and, you know, his whole thing when he would come home after his first walk job was to get some rest and get ready for the next one, you know, and, and it, it was just crazy for me as a young man to watch how hard they worked just to provide what we had, you know, and we didn't have a, we didn't have a ton, uh, but we wasn't, you know, dirt poor, but you could just see them breaking their backs. And I just wanted, you know, growing up, I, I said, I got to, you know, be able to make it, you know, so I can help my family. It was never, you know, that was never the idea of being a world champion or being rich or being famous. It was all about, for me, uh, just trying to get there to the point where financially I could help my parents. So it was like you said, that, that's sometimes enough motivation when you see, you know, people that you love that are struggling and you feel that you have a way to help them. That was a big motivation factor for me. When did you, obviously you loved sports. You decided at 12, you wanted to play in the NBA. Um, the vast majority of 12 year olds when I was 12 also had the same goal. It was the NBA <laughs> or playing, playing football. But right. Tell me when it was that you realized or that someone realized that you had something special. I mean, because 0. 0.00 something percent of right, people actually right. make it. But when was it you realized you had something special? I think my freshman year at Arizona State. Uh, my, my freshman year, we had, you know, Lafayette Lever, uh, who was in the NBA. You know, I'm just talking about the guys when I got there, you know, later on, they were, you know, NBA players. Uh, Sam Williams, Alton Lister, you know, Kirk Nippius. So my freshman year, I had four guys on the team uh, that were already, you know, they were talking about, the NBA was talking about being drafted. And the first month or so of practice, you know, I was having a ball because I was kicking butt, you know, so I thought right then, I said, man, you know, I, I can make it because I'm going to keep getting better and I'm going to keep working harder. Uh, you know, so I got a real shot at, you know, in two or three years of being in the NBA because, you know, they talk about, you know, Lister's going to be a, you know, top 15 pick and I'm in here in practice having a good time whooping his butt and I, I, <laughs> Lafayette Leavers, <laughs> he's going to be a top 15, 20 pick and me and him going hand to hand. I'm holding my own without a doubt. So it, it was when I was 18 years old when I finally started to realize that this this dream that I have is a real, real, real possibility. When you, it's interesting because you know, when people are surrounded by uh, success or others who have potential success, you can kind of go in two directions. Either one, you can kind mm -hmm. of lose your confidence and feel like well, I'll never be that good uh, and achieve like they're achieving. So you can go in the other direction and kind of shut down right. or right. you can gravitate and say to yourself listen if they can do it i can do it and i gotta work hard to get there um to make the dreams happen and that's what it sounds like was the route that you took it, it absolutely was and i mean i i, I never uh the, the, the one thing just going back you know watching guys that were that good that i played against uh in college before i even got to the nba the one thing i never had was any envy towards them whatsoever you know if they were just better than me i was like like you said i was like man i just got to work harder. You know, I, I just got to continue to work on my game, continue to work on my body, um, you know, and I can be as just good, if not better than them. That was the attitude that I took, you know. So, like you said, I, I've never been the type of guy that's going to put my tail under my butt and you know, run the other way. I've always looked at it as a challenge, and I've always met those type of challenges head on. And the one thing about me, if I, if I, you know, if I fail in a certain challenge, you know, you know, get knocked down, you get right back up and you try a little bit harder. That's that's always been kind of my, uh, my MO, you know, since I was little. Um, uh, and it's uh, carried on, you know, in my adulthood. And it obviously, you know, served me extremely well when I got drafted to the pros. And then, you know, I always told people when I tell a lot of guys that are getting drafted into the NBA, so can now you, you know, that, that's the easy part. You know, the, the, the tough part is staying in the NBA for 10 years or 15 years. You know, getting mm -hmm. drafted is easy. You know, mm -hmm. so that was my 
motto. You know, every year that I was in the league, I said, look, I got to add something new to my game. I got to get better every year so I can kind of sustain this you know, lifelong dream that I've had to play in this league as long as I want to play. You know, it's interesting. Um, you talk about learning as a young child to fall down and get back up. And I think that now in the kind of era that we're living in, that's one of those old school principles that really should still be here. It, we, we've lost some of that. You know, I tell my kids yeah. all the time, you know, whether they have a little, a minor injury or they fail at something, I said, listen, we got to go right back at it. You know, yep. you lose, you lose a match. The next day we're in the gym. Um, yep. And because losing and failing to me have always been a very fertile breeding ground to learn. And yeah. I, I think that, you know, in this era where we tend to pamper our children um, and we want to do so much with them, especially when you're successful, when you're successful, you don't necessarily always want your kids to have to face the struggles you face. And we, te we tend, unfortunately, while we want to take care of them, I think sometimes we do them a disservice. So I'm constantly saying to my kids, listen, we got to go back at it. You know, you yeah. dust yourself yeah. off. You know, you fell down, yeah. you twisted your ankle a little bit, let's tape it uh, and let's get back out on the court. And I just think that that kind of old time value really should be timeless. Oh, I agree. I, I don't think you should ever, I, you know, the first thing about, you know, losing is that sometimes it's the best teacher. You know, if, if you really have that will and that determination. Uh, if you lose or you don't learn anything from it, then that then you're doing yourself a, you're doing yourself a disservice. But if you lose or you get knocked down and you, and you get back up and you start to analyze why you lost, why you got knocked down, and then, hey, let's go back in the gym. Let's go back at it. Sometimes that is the best teacher. And, and, and again, like you said, you know, those tough lessons can make or break you, you know, as, as a person. So, you know, I've always been that person if I lose, you know, go back, you know, especially if it's a basketball game, look at the film, what didn't you do right, you know, uh, uh, and I always focus on the, the things that I did wrong early. And then I always go back to what did I do right? You know, because, you know, the things I did good, I still want to improve on them. But the things I did bad, we got to limit those mistakes. But sometimes, in, in my opinion, when you lose, sometimes that is the best teacher. Because like you said, our kids today are pampered so much. And, and, and like you said, we all want the best for our children. You know, so sometimes we, we, we pamper them as well. But, you know, my son came to me one day and he said, and he was, he was young. You know, and it was all about he wanted some in, in Nintendo games. And this is when he was about 13, 14. And my dad used to always tell me, do you want it or do you need it? There's a, there's a big difference, mm. you know, mm. big, big difference. Yes, sir. You know, you, you want it because daddy can afford it. You don't mm -hmm. necessarily need it. Mm -hmm. So if you need it, you're going to have to work for it. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the biggest lesson that I tried to teach my kids is that, yeah, you know, daddy got money to get you this, this, and that, but you got to earn this. Mm -hmm. You got to earn your way through life. And I, and I think that's so important for this generation now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think one of the biggest disservices we can do is, is once we become successful and we've quote unquote made it, then we turn around and remove all the obstacles that people need to face in order to not right. only discover themselves, but learn how to navigate uh, this very tricky path of life. So speaking of navigating, so here you are, you're in Arizona, you're getting better. Uh, you decide to enter the draft uh, after your junior year. Uh, tell me what it felt like after all this hard work, after all this focus, after watching your parents sacrifice so much so you could have the best chance to become successful. What was it like uh, on draft day when it all happened? Describe it to me. Tell me what happened. Oh, I mean, it, 
it was it was great. Now I, I got to go back to the, you know I was drafted by the Clippers, and at that particular time they were the San Diego Clippers. So they had called me uh, two days before the draft to let me know that they were picking me, you know, fourth in the draft, and they wanted me to come down to San Diego and, and go through the draft party and meet all the people and all that. Uh, so I went down there and you know heard my name, you know, talked to the press, you know, and, and it, it was it was sitting there. I was sitting there like it was a dream. I, I was literally sitting there thinking, wow, you know, I, I'm in the NBA, you know, all the work mm. that I did, uh, I still couldn't almost believe it. You know, mm. I thought it was a little bit of like a dream until I went back home and, and, you know, told my mom how that day went and everything. And she was so proud of me and everything. Uh, that's when I realized that you know, the dream had come true. And then my, my initial thought right after that, when I got home was, okay, now I got to take care of my family, mm. you know, Mm. My mom, you know, I walked up to her and I was like, Mom, no, you want a house? What, what do you want? My mom was so cool. She's like, I don't want a house. I just want you to get this one painted inside. Let me get some new carpet. <laughs> you know, real <laughs> you know, simple stuff. You know, she didn't want no, she didn't want no, nothing extravagant. She just wanted, you know, her home to have a fresh paint job in the inside. She wanted to remove the carpet, put some more carpet in. Mm. Uh, I bought her a car. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. just, it was just little things that she wanted. She didn't want nothing crazy. But uh, when she told me that, I was like okay you know now now i got i got the means to take care of her and take care of my family and now as i stated earlier now the real work starts because and where was your dad my dad was cool my dad used to work for use airline he was just like you know he, he was always the i wouldn't say the negative one but he was always the one that would say so what if you don't make it what are you gonna do mm-hmm. you know and, and and which kept driving me to make it and i was like dad i'm gonna make it well what if you don't you know and, and his, his whole thing was education you know yeah. he's like if you don't make it, you got to get a, you got to get your education. So he would he was just kind of sit back and just like take care of your mom. You know, if she wants the house painted, just paint the house for her. If she wants a car. He said, I'm good. You know, just the fact that you've made it and you you've gotten to the end of it. He said, but now you got to work even harder. You know, mm. and I said, I already know that. You know, mm. so my dad was a lot like me. He just he understood that. Well, I, I could reverse that. I was a lot like my dad because he taught me what work ethic was all about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because when you think now, listen now, you played. You know, when you played uh, during the show time era (laughs) for the Lakers. Uh, Of course, me being a basketball player, um, not anywhere, even a fraction as good as you, obviously, and and not thinking about the NBA, but loving the game my whole life and playing it my whole life. You know, that to me was, you know, when you look at the Lakers Showtime era, when you look at the Dr. J, Larry Bird era, those to me are two of the greatest eras um, and you know, my lifetime of the NBA, um, and you guys just had, there was something special. It was beyond how good you guys were. It was the aura. You guys had an aura. You know, they talk about how Tiger Woods, you know, had this aura when he was in his heyday. I, and, and right, how it right. was just that thing. Boy, did you guys have an aura during showtime? I agree. I, I mean, that aura sometimes got to the point where people thought we were cocky. You know, mm. it was just, uh, the, the confidence level that we had as a team, you know, when we would walk into another arena, uh, you could you could tell you know the fans you know they they came to see their home team but they really wanted to see us. <laughs> <laughs> you know they they were gonna root for their team but boy did they want to see us. You know they they wanted to see the Showtime there. They wanted to see Magic on the fast break. They wanted to see James Worthy. They wanted to see that Sky Hook. You know they wanted to see me shoot jump shots. You know it, it was just like you said the aura that we had when we walked into a building was 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 it was mind boggling. I mean because people would look at us and and I think when you in that in that mind that as, as a team, we really didn't understand it. I don't even think we even we we had we even knew as a team that we had that type of aura around us. But it's, it, you 
you know, but a lot of it was just the confidence level that we had going into an arena. You know, the way we interacted with fans during games, especially at home. But when we walked into a, you know, into a building, you know, people would just look at us like we were the Beatles. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, just had, we had, like you said, we had an aura about us that was uh, all about winning. And it was all about championships. It was never about individual achievements. It was about the team, the team thing. And that's what Magic taught me my rookie year. He used to always tell me when we win, we all win. And I didn't, you know, I'm, you know, 21 years old. I was like, yeah, I mean, I understand that. He's like, no, you don't understand. Until we won a championship is where I understood what he was saying. But everybody wants a piece of you. Even if you're the first guy to the 12th guy, every company, you know, marketing companies want a piece of you. You know, uh, they want you to do appearances, TV shows, or, you know, TV commercials. And that's when I found out what he meant about when we win, you know, we all win. It was all about the team. You know, it's interesting you say that because I think about, I think about kind of looking at the trajectory of your life and you worked really hard and you had seen success as a kid. You saw it at Arizona. Um, mm -hmm. And now you're in the NBA and you're with one of the, arguably one of the greatest teams, a combination of teams of all time. And then you win a championship. Championship. I mean, how does that change your life? Like, what? How does that change? Ooh, man. And, I mean, you, the, the one thing that changes is it makes it makes you uh, walk around the city with your chest stuck out, sticking out. You know, you, you now, you know, you're the NBA <laughs> champion. You know, we call it Inglewood, the city of champions. You know, so for me, it was it was unbelievable because I won a championship with the team that I admired and loved for so many years growing up. Uh, and being a kid from Inglewood to come back home and win a championship, it was even that much more special for me. Uh, and it's yeah, because the no form is right there. there. The form is 14 blocks from where I. Grew up. Wow. You know, literally, I would walk to Darby Park, which is another, you know, seven blocks to get to the farm. And I would play uh, baseball and basketball and football at Darby Park. And when you play baseball, if you just looked at the fence, you could see the form. And, and so I always, you know, even playing at the park, I would be looking there saying, I'm going to be playing there one day, you know. And to grow up there, to win a championship there, you know, in your hometown, there's no greater feeling and nothing that's more satisfying than be able to be a champion at home, you know, mm. and, and especially with that organization that was one of the best and still is one of the best organizations in all of sports. It's, it's interesting though, because when you look at LA, uh, it's hard not to see LA and think of Hollywood and all the real right. celebrities out there, right. you know, uh, Jack Nicholson, you know, at right. every game. I mean, what's it like to be a celebrity in a town of celebrities? <laughs> It's weird. You know, it's, it's crazy because, like you said, you got Jack sitting in front row. And I remember Jack used to always mess with me when I would be going into the game. And every time I would be going into the game, Jack would say, hey, B, shoot it. Shoot it, B. Just shoot it. I said, all right, Jack. You know, every party that we had, Jack Nicholson was at the party. You know, you see Denzel at the game, Marcus Allen. You see all these guys, you know, sports guys and actors and actresses that you watch on TV right. that you admire. And, they, and they're at our games, you know, admiring us, you know, watching us work. So, it was, it was a weird combination of being able to, you know, play in front of these people that you see, you know, on TV. And then it was even crazier to become friends with a lot of them, mm. you know. Uh, and then you started to understand why they're successful, you know, so successful as, as actors and actresses. Uh, because, again, they just like us. They, they work very hard at their craft and they want to be the best at it. So it was great to be able to spend time watching Denzel uh, at the games and then seeing him, you know, seeing him every now and then. And I think the last game I went to, the late game, Denzel and I ran into each other coming into the arena and talked, you know, real briefly. But just, you know, but just good people. So it, it was weird for me. Magic, you know, Magic might have, you know, got a whole lot more used to it than I did. But it took me a while to get used to having unbelievable actors and actresses come to the game to watch us play. Well, I think what's interesting in, in what you said, among many things, is that people look at successful uh, celebrities 
and they tend not to think about the work that went into what has made them so successful, right? And right, right. You know, one thing I learned, um, you know, meeting a lot of celebrities and getting a chance to actually spend quality time, not just kind of a brief interface, but actually spending right. real time, is you realize how hard they work at their craft. Like, you realize right. that they hustle like you hustle. Um, right. And by hustling, I don't mean in a negative way, but I mean, you know, they're always uh, uh, enterprising and trying to think of new things to do and new ways to do it and how to build the brand and how to reinvent themselves. And, you know, right. and they're really rolling up their sleeves. People don't see that part of successful celebrities. No, they don't. I, and like you said, you know, as far as basketball is concerned, people would just see us on TV. We travel to Chicago and then the next night we're playing in Boston. Two nights later, we're in New York or New Jersey. And people just see that as glamorous. You know, you get to fly on these planes first class and you play this game, but they don't see all the behind the scenes stuff. Like you just said, all the work that you have to put into it to get ready for a game. You know, uh, you have to watch what you eat. You have to get your rest. You know, I mean, they, they don't understand how, how how tough it is and, then how, and how dedicated and determined that you have to be to be successful at, at that particular sport. So mm-hmm. we all, I think as athletes, you know, especially in the Showtime days, I remember, you know, we all sacrificed, you know, we, we sacrificed uh, some family things, you know, you, you miss birthdays, you miss, you know, anniversaries because you're, you're on the road, you know, and all those sacrifices at the end of the day, you know, you can't make up on, but for what you're trying to do in your, in your you know, chosen profession, you know, those are the things you have to do sometimes to be successful. You have to make those sacrifices. You decide um, when your playing career is over, uh, a very, very successful and long career, um, you eventually get into coaching um, and yeah. you become a very, very successful coach, still in the game, but a different part of the game. Um, what was that experience experience like being a player all of your life and now being a leader from the coaching side? It, it was different. I, I think one of the coaches that I talked to a while back, you know, when I was talking about getting into coaching, he said, why do you want to do that? <laughs> 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 I said, because I still love the game, and, I, and I, I said, I think I still have a lot to offer, and I think I can really, you know, teach some of these young guys what it what it means to be a winner. You know, what it what you know how how hard it is, and how much work you got to put into it. The biggest the biggest difference to me is is, is that you know when, when you're when you're playing, you worry about you. Mm. I got to make sure I'm ready every single night because I don't want to let my teammates down. You know, that was always my biggest fear. If I if I wasn't in shape, if I wasn't prepared, you know, then I'm letting my teammates down, and that that was something that I refused to do. As a coach, you got to worry about all twelve guys. Mm. You know, you just can't worry about one person. So you got to you got to worry about all twelve guys. You have to be a little bit of a mom, a dad, a doctor, a psychiatrist, a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, you got to have so many different hats because everybody's different, and you got to mm. figure out what buttons to push on each and every guy to get them motivated and ready to play. Now, some guys you don't have to. You know, some guys are just self motivated. But as a coach, you really, really have to be very in tune with everybody on that team. And as a player, I just had to be in tune with me. I just had to be ready, you know, so mm. that was the biggest difference, but but it was still it, the, the challenge is still the same, you know, trying to outwit the other coach, trying to win games, the challenge is still the same. It's interesting because, um, you know, I remember watching you as a player, then seeing you as a coach, and one of the things I always loved was how cool you were, and cool, <laughs> not, not necessarily with swag, but cool meaning you always had a calm disposition, like you were always... Yeah. You're always aware of how you carried yourself. Uh, never heard any negative things about you. You were never involved in, in you know, the, the kind of scandalous things that, that unfortunately tend to be common with successful athletes. But you were always a very well-dressed, well-carried individual. And that, to me, that image, to me, also meant a lot to the rest of us 
who look for that kind of image and, and, and you represent so well. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Now, you know what? It, it, it wasn't something that I necessarily had to work on. I, I think all the battles that I have been in, uh, you know, with the Lakers as a player, uh, being able to, you know, play with Magic and, and Coop and Kareem and all those guys, none of us ever uh, seemed to be worried, you know, during the game. You know, everybody was always cool. And then you look over the sideline, you got Pat Riley over there in his Armani suits, and he was cool and clean as can be. And so I, I I think a lot of that just kind of rubbed off on me as a coach. Uh, but the other thing, like I said, is I, I had been through so many wars and battles as a player that there wasn't any situation that I felt, you know, being on that sideline that was too big for me or, or the moment was too big. I always felt right at home. Mm. And um, I, and I and I loved that. I, I loved the, you know, the competition. I loved the uh, camaraderie with the players. So, and I also, I also was very aware of being an African-American coach. You know, the one thing I didn't want to do is be, you know, you know running up and down the sideline you know, mm-hmm. screaming and yelling and acting a fool because that portrays a, a whole different, you know, mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I did not want that that type of uh, image for myself. Sure. So, you know, the, the calm, cool, and collective, everybody, I mean, I, I heard that a lot where they said, man, you were just so cool on the sideline. You never got rattled and all that. I said, always. Oh, one of the things that I always thought was this as well is that I'm the general and these are my troops. If the troops see a general getting rattled, what you think they going to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know what I mean? So yes. I felt if I was cool and everything was good, you know, we went into overtime in the game and I said, hey, guys, we just, hey, we got five more minutes. We're going to still get it done. That right there shows the confidence, you know, coming from your your general and then the troops feel the same way. It's interesting you mentioned Patrick Riley because you you two are a few coaches, I can say, who walked onto the court and spent a whole game and walked off the court without a wrinkle in your suit. So... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Hey, we're going to, uh, I'm going to, um, come up to the end. At the end of our conversations, I do something called the random seven, just seven random quick questions. You can just provide quick answers. But before I get okay. there, I would be remiss if I did not ask you what it was like playing against Jordan. Oh, man. I, I mean, I, hey, man, you, you know, sometimes, you know, you got to just bow your head and, and, and pay homage to the, to the greatest, you know, he, he, he was, the, and I, and I feel like I have this debate a lot. You know, I think Kareem Abdul Jabbar is the greatest player at all time. I, you know, just you look at his track record from high school to the pro. I mean, he's to me the greatest player, the most dominant player that ever played a game. But the greatest player I ever played against was Michael Jordan. And mm. he, he was a guy that just didn't have any weaknesses. And when I guarded him, you know, I, I had some success on a few games. And then there's other games where he just, I was like, man, there ain't nothing I can do, you know, with this guy. It's just, just nothing you can do with him. You know, you just hope he misses. You know, but the one thing I used to tell guys, I said, man, listen, when you're playing against MJ, the one thing you don't want to do is talk a bunch of crap to him or start trying to get physical because then he's going to take it personal and then he's going to go off. So every shot that he made against me, <laughs> yeah. Hey, all right, and I swear to God, every time he made a good shot, I said, hey, MJ, that was a great shot, man. You know, you give him a compliment about it. You know, try to keep him low-key. I don't want to get him upset, you know. And he was, and, and to this very day, the only player that I ever played against that I had that much respect that I didn't want to piss him off. Everybody else, I didn't give a damn. But right. him, I was like, look, man, I ain't messing with him because he, he can get 60 on you in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, a lot of people who don't play basketball or have never been close enough to see the players at a game, they don't realize the amount of trash talking um, that occurs during the game. That's just kind of normal operating procedures. You know, you talk trash and, you know, I mean, you can see it sometimes on replays on ESPN or whatever, but, um, but MJ was known for talking trash. I mean, he had no qualms getting in, in that mode. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh no, he, he was one of the best at it. And, and like I said, and he did it, I think for the most part to see if 
if he can get you riled up to talk back to him. Because once you talk back to him, then his competitive nature and his juices start flowing. And now you got now you're dealing with a different beast. Mm-hmm. You know, so my whole my whole objective with him was nah, I ain't messing with him on that level, man. I ain't talking no smack to him because I don't want him to get sixty on me. You know, but anybody else, you know, and and you know, I had some great ones. I like Clyde Drexler was a great player. You know, Clyde the Glide. But, uh, yeah, Clyde to Glide. But I wasn't, you know, I wasn't worried about him getting 60 on me. You know, right. Isaiah Thomas, who I thought was the best point guard I ever played against. You know, handles everything. And he and, and Zeke, I used to say, man, I said, look, man, he got that baby face, but he's an assassin. He tried to kill mm-hmm. you. You know, didn't mess mm-hmm. with him much. But MJ, no, nah, I was like, no, nah, I ain't mess with him, man. I just want him to shoot jumpers tonight. <laughs> <laughs> keep him out of the paint as much as possible. I don't want to be on no ESPN dunk, yo, replays and none of that stuff. <laughs> um, all right, so here we go. This is the random seven. Seven questions. Okay. Um, you answer, quick answers, um, and I'm not going to interrupt. You just say you want to answer, and I move on to the next question. Okay. Here we go. What does success look like to Byron Scott? Success looks like to, to Byron Scott, uh, a man at home with his wife and kids and family surrounding him. Uh, that's a success for me, just having my family and friends around me. If you were not a basketball player and a coach, what would your dream job have been? Oh, man. Uh, playing the Major League Baseball. That was my other dream. Is like, if I don't make it in basketball, you know, Major League Baseball uh, was something that I was good at as well, especially in high school. So that would have been my other dream would have been playing in the Major Leagues. Who would you like to have a long dinner with who you haven't met yet and why? President Obama. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet him and I, I, I didn't when I was in Indiana uh, as a coach. Uh, we were in Indiana to play a preseason game and, and uh, President Obama was there. He wasn't president at the time. He was, he was running and the team went to meet him and I had a promise a friend of mine that I would meet him for lunch and and to this day, I told my friend, what the hell did I do that for? I should have told you I, I got to go see President Obama. But I would love to meet him and just talk to him about um, his presidency and about his love for sports. Mm-hmm. What really makes Byron Scott angry? Hardiness. <laughs> I hate being late. Uh, I mean, that's just a pet peeve of mine, you know, and you, and you know this, when you marry, most of the time you, you're going to be late because you're married and the wife <laughs> got to get ready and she don't want to be the first one there. Uh, so I, I, I start tricking my wife. We got to be somewhere at 730. I tell her seven o'clock. So I, I just hate, I just hate, <laughs> I hate being tardy. So uh, that's my pet peeve, this tardiness. I don't like it because I, I think all of our, all of our times is valuable. I don't want to be tardy if I, if you invite me me to something and boy if uh, if I invite you to something do not come tardy I, I would be highly upset what do you own that's really expensive but you don't feel guilty about oh man um, my house <laughs> I mean, uh, and I and I just bought this house a year ago, but it is uh, it's a beautiful home, and I don't feel guilty because I think I've earned it. Mm, I love it. Which person or celebrity did you always have a crush on, and why? Wow, which person or celebrity that I always had a crush on, and why? Oh uh, man, I, I had well, she's she's a lot younger than me, uh, but I had a big time crush on when I was with the Lakers, and I had a chance to meet her, which was fantastic. It was Tyra. Banks. And why? Because Tyree was tall and just beautiful. And then uh, she came to a game, uh, came in the locker room, we took pictures together, and then I found out that she, when she was younger, had a crush on me. So it was, it was, <laughs> I felt really good about that. Um, talked to her on, on different occasions after that, on just, you know, just friendship and, and some, some business things, but just a beautiful person. I, I, I was big time in love with Tyra back in the day. Yeah, I'm friends with Tyra also. She's a good person. She's fun too. She's, She's a lot of fun. Great person. Yes, yep. she is.
is. All right. Lastly, when someone comes across an article written about you a hundred years from now, what do you want that article to say about you? Um, I just wanted to say that he was a great person, played with a lot of heart, had a big heart for people, loved kids. Uh, it was very humble, very, very humble and uh, loved his family. Byron Scott, thank you for the conversation. Always a pleasure, my brother. You know that. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is hosted by Dr. Ian Smith, associate producer Lauren Turner, executive producer Ian Smith, edited by Ken Johnson, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.